0: Jesus, the good shepherd, gave us eternal life when he chose to pay the penalty for our sins by dying in our place. Jesus demonstrated his love by laying down his life. He demonstrated his deity by rising from the dead. students, if you'd be so kind, open your Bibles to John 10. As you know, we're studying the Gospel of John. This context of this chapter takes place in the Feast of Tabernacles, which occurs in September-October. Jesus is six months away from the cross. He's going to the cross in March-April of the following year. From the very beginning of His ministry, uh, Jesus, of course, has been claiming that God was His Father, that Heaven was His home of origin, and that he had the exact same nature and essence as God. He's claiming to be Messiah, God in human flesh, and he demonstrated that by fulfilling multiple Old Testament prophecies, and performing hundreds of supernatural miracles, which documented that fact over about a two and a half year period. He's been ministering now for about 30 months or so. The Jewish religious leaders, who John often calls the Jews as shorthand, they know exactly who he's claimed to be, and they have been trying to kill him now for about two years. They regard his claim to be God as blasphemy, blasphemy, and that was a capital crime according to the book of Leviticus, and they regard Jesus as their worst enemy, and for the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus was their worst enemy because he called them out routinely and labeled them for what they were, false shepherds, false prophets, and hypocrites. Now, the context of this immediate chapter Chapter 9, Jesus has supernaturally healed a man born blind, which has never occurred uh, in the Old Testament. There was no documentation that a man born blind ever was healed. The Pharisees excommunicate this formerly blind man from the synagogue. Remember, Jesus seeks him out, and the man demonstrates his faith in Christ by confessing him and worshiping him. The Pharisees kick him out of the synagogue, and Jesus welcomes him into his flock of the redeemed. So Jesus heals this blind man both physically and spiritually. Now that's the immediate context for chapter 10. Now when you look at your Bible, it says chapter 9 and chapter 10. When John wrote, there were no chapter headings. They didn't show up till centuries later. So chapter 9 and chapter 10 are one continuous event. There's a sequence of events here. There's no break in the action between chapter 9 and chapter 10. So the, the players, if you will are Jesus, his disciples, the blind man, the crowd of Jewish onlookers, and the scribes and Pharisees. These are the people in this drama, and Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Jesus is the speaker, and the Pharisees are the intended audience. And In John 9.41, the last verse of John 9, Jesus says to them, the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains, and the very next sentence out of his mouth is, John 10:1, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep... Follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow what will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Verse 6 This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Here's the principle Jesus is the true shepherd whose sheep respond to his call by following him faithfully. Jesus is the true shepherd whose sheep respond to his call by following him faithfully. And today we're going to look at the first 18 verses of John 10. And these 18 verses very logically divide into three sections, three groups. Verses 1 through 6 tell us that Jesus is gathering his flock. That's the first six verses. Jesus is gathering his flock. Verses 7 to 10 tell us why Jesus is gathering his flock. And verse 10 tells us, Jesus gathers his flock in order to give them abundant eternal life. That's the purpose of gathering the flock, abundant eternal life. Verse 11 to 18 tells us how Jesus is gathering his flock. And he gives his flock abundant eternal life by laying down his life for them. So the first section of this is Jesus is gathering his flock. Section number two is why Jesus is gathering his flock, abundant eternal life. And section three is how he gives them eternal life by laying down his life for them and then rising from the dead. Now, Jesus is going to use a very common word picture to explain this to his audience, the practice of shepherding. And he's contrasting himself as the good shepherd with the scribes and Pharisees who are false shepherds. It makes that extraordinarily clear. Good shepherds are always present with the flock, and they provide for the flock, and they protect the flock. The scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus calls thieves and robbers. They did not provide for the sheep. They fleeced the sheep instead of feeding the sheep, and they abused the sheep, which are the Jewish people, for their own selfish gain. Now, in the ancient Near East, even today, shepherds and sheep are a very common sight. Central Judea, south of Jerusalem, is, uh, it's a rocky plateau, it's about 15 miles wide, it's about 35 miles long, it runs all the way from Bethel down to Hebron, and there's almost no rainfall, very, very limited rainfall, and it is a rock pile. If you've ever been to Israel, you know that there's lots of stones, and so the soil is very stony, very rocky, not much rain, so you can't grow crops, you want to go crops, you have to go to northern Israel where there's a lot more rain. So what they did with this area for thousands of years is they herded flocks of sheep and goats because sheep and goats can eat and digest almost anything, including kale. I mean, they can eat you know, just virtually any tough, fibrous plant. I know you all love kale, right? Shepherding was a very common occupation, but it was very much despised. Shepherding was the... Almost the lowest of the occupations, right? Uh, it was the lowest rung of social ladder. They were not well regarded. They were regarded as unclean, right? They worked with sweaty, smelly, dirty animals, and they were in contact with animal blood, manure. I mean, it was a, it was a messy occupation, right? Since they worked with animals, they often smelled like animals. You didn't have a great deal of, you know, every 24 hours showers and stuff like that, so you smelled like the animals you worked with. Shepherding was very hard work, very limited pay. Shepherding requires constant attention because sheep are very vulnerable. Sheep are very dependent. Sheep have no homing instinct, for example. Um, Sheep don't know how to find their way home. You can put a sheep in front of the sheepfold, within sight of the sheepfold, and they cannot find their way to the sheepfold, let alone into the sheepfold. Of course, the Lord describes us as sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We wander off, and we pursue stuff, and we look back five years and say, what was I thinking? You're a sheep, right? You need a shepherd. Sheep can eat poisonous plants, routinely do. Unless the shepherd walks the field first, gets all the poisonous plants out, they fall into crevasses, they get attacked by predators, they get stolen by thieves, and they fight with each other. Who would want to be a shepherd? (laughs) But the nation of Israel has a long history of shepherds and sheep. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. King David was a shepherd. The most prominent of all shepherds in the Old Testament though was God himself. He was the shepherd of Israel. Psalm 23 says what? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So each village in the Judean region had sheep and therefore shepherds. During the day the shepherds would take their flocks from the fold into the fields in order to graze and drink and at night. They would bring their own flock into a community sheep pen. Many, many times in a village you would have a community sheep pen, and there could be as many as a dozen flocks inside that sheep pen. The sheep fold was often pretty close to the village for protection, and there was only one door, and sometimes there was only an opening with no door. So the village shepherds would bring their collective flocks to this community sheep fold, And they would hire a porter or a night guard to guard the sheepfold at night while they went home and slept. And the hired hand would work the night shift and he would close and bar the door if there was one and then stay inside with the sheep to protect them from thieves and robbers and things of that nature. Now if there was no door and you just saw an opening, the shepherd, the night porter, became the door. They slept in the doorway, which means no sheep went over the top of them, or no wolf went over the top going in. So this porter then became the door, which we're going to find out in the future. Jesus is going to say he is the door, extremely significant. So at night, anyone who tried to get in the sheepfold by climbing over the wall was demonstrably not legitimate. right? They were not a shepherd, they were a thief and a robber. And if the door could not be forced open, sometimes they had pretty significant doors and they barred them, Sometimes robbers would climb over the wall, kill the porter, kill the sheep, throw their carcasses back over the wall, drag them off, and then they'd shear them and butcher them later on. Now, there's a difference between a thief and a robber. A thief operates by stealth. A thief operates by trickery. A thief is a burglar. They come into your house when you're not there. They don't want confrontation. They want to avoid using force, so they sneak in to avoid detection. A robber wants a confrontation. A robber breaks in when you're home, right? And they steal with force and violence, or at least the threat of violence. Thieves sneak over the walls. Shepherds come through the gates. Jesus is going to use this as a very significant word picture in a couple of minutes. So in the morning, the shepherd would wake up and they would go to the sheepfold from the village. They'd identify themselves to the doorkeeper, I'm so-and-so doorkeeper would open the gate and the shepherd would go into the sheepfold call her own sheep by name separate them from the other flocks and take them out to the pen out of the pen and to the pasture and the sheep would follow their shepherd because they recognized their shepherd's voice now each shepherd had a unique call and when they called their sheep it could have been a yodel it could have been a tone of voice it could have been a particular call but they all had a unique call and the shepherd, the sheep, knew that call, and they would follow that call. They followed the call because the, the shepherd had a history of taking care of them. You know, you all have pets, and uh, you think your pets love you. No, they just love the food. You know, I mean, that's the bottom line. If you didn't feed them, they probably wouldn't come when you called. Just saying. Children are like that, too, at a certain stage of life, right? It's an interesting phrase here. It says, the shepherd goes into the sheepfold and puts forth his own. He gets them out of the sheepfold, sometimes by force. Sometimes you have to force sheep out of the fold, right? Pretty comfortable inside the pen, but the shepherd knows that what the sheep need, food, pasture, water, is not in the fold, it's outside the fold, so there's an implication here that sometimes a shepherd has got to move them by force outside the fold. You know, when you think about a shepherd, we think about a shepherd as this caring individual. The shepherd is sovereign over the flock. The shepherd will do whatever they determine to be in the best interests of the flock, regardless of whether the flock likes it or not. Does that make sense? when we're called sheep, right? Now, in the ancient Near East, sheep dogs were not used to drive sheep in front of them like they are here. The shepherd led the sheep by walking in front of them, so they could see the shepherd and they would follow wherever the shepherd went. And of course, the shepherd had a responsibility to lead them to pasture where they can graze and water sources where they can drink. Sheep. Are remarkably defenseless creatures. They really have no natural defense. They are completely defenseless against, in that particular era, mountain lions, wolves, uh, jackals, even bears. In the United States today and in New Zealand, where a lot of sheep are, coyotes are responsible for probably 60, 65% of all the kills. They didn't have coyotes back then, but they did have jackals, mountain lions, and things of that nature. The shepherd would defend against these animals, uh, these predators. By using a, a rod and a staff. Psalm 23 says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, if you're a sheep, you want your shepherd to be armed. Right? Uh, the, the, the rod was, it was like a large police baton. It was an oak branch, pretty heavy, and it had a knob on the end, a big oak knob on the end. And it was heavy enough, you could brain an animal with it, or you could actually throw it as a means of defending your sheep. And they also carried a staff. A staff was a a fairly heavy wooden stick, sometimes with a crook on the end. It was maybe six feet long. And they would use that to direct the sheep, to stop the sheep. Or when, 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 when ewes are birthing, sometimes the lamb gets separated from mom. You cannot pick the lamb up with your hands and put the lamb next to mom. Mom will reject the sheep because they'll smell you. So you use the crook to pick up the lamb and set it next to mom. If there's a lot of birthing going on at one time, they can get confused. So some of you have been picked up by the staff of God and moved in places. Yes? Say yes. I know it's true. You've got the scar tissue to prove it. It Says Jesus says, a stranger they will not follow. And they won't follow a stranger because they know the shepherd and the shepherd knows them. At night, when they were coming into the fold, uh, they would enter the sheep fold one at a time, single file, one at a time. And the shepherd would drop the staff in front of each sheep and stop them and check them over top to bottom, front to back. Uh, wanted to make sure there's nothing that needed attention no cuts, no insect infestations no infections, no hoof diseases, no bites, no breaks, no excess lanolin in the wool. They would literally run their hands over the sheep and check each one out before they let them in the fold. So the shepherd knew the sheep intimately. Shepherds didn't have huge flocks. If you had 10 to 25 sheep, that was a fairly common-sized flock, so the shepherd knew each of the sheep uh, by name. They name their sheep like you name your pets, right? Your pets respond to you because they know your voice. They have a history that you feed them and uh, all those things you shouldn't feed them, and that's why they're overweight and all that other stuff, right? You would never do that, of course. But when you call your pet by name, they come to you because you spend time with them. The shepherds knew their sheep far better than we know our pets. Because they spent all day, every day, with their sheep. We're talking probably from 6 in the morning till 8, 9 at night. Every day, seven days a week. And Jesus said, sheep will not follow a stranger because they don't know the voice of a stranger. We've tested that empirically. They've taken a stranger, they've dressed him up in the shepherd's clothing, they've taught the stranger the exact call of the shepherd, and then tried to call the sheep, and the sheep just panicked. They just flee, because they don't know the stranger's voice, even even though they're dressed like a stranger. That's kind of the context Jesus is going to use to make a number of points, but it's fascinating that in verse 6 it says, the religious leaders did not understand what Jesus was saying. They're supposed to be spiritual leaders with spiritual discernment, And they have zero insight. And so Jesus is now going to explain this figure of speech. Verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All that came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Here's the principle. Jesus, the only door to a saving relationship with God, gives his people abundant eternal life. Jesus, the only door to a saving relationship with God, gives his people abundant eternal life. And Jesus says, truly, truly. Anytime you see the word truly, truly, Verily, verily, in the old King James, amen, amen, it's basically saying, pay attention. This is important. This is vital. And anytime Jesus uses the word truly, truly, he's never introducing a new concept. Truly, truly is always used to summarize an already revealed concept. He's highlighting and summarizing the key points of what he's been talking about, and he's now going to explain this figure of speech. The sheepfold is a picture of Israel, the nation of Israel. And the sheep in this figure of speech are the Jewish people. And they're in the fold, the sheepfold of Judaism, religious Judaism. The shepherd, of course, is Jesus the Messiah. And just like only authorized shepherds come into the sheepfold for the gate, Jesus came to Israel as God's authorized representative of the Messiah. The good shepherd, Jesus, is calling his own sheep out of Judaism into a personal relationship with him through salvation. Not only that, Jesus says in verse 16, I have other sheep, which are not of this fold, not of the fold of Judaism. And I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. These other sheep are you and I. They're Gentiles, right? Who are in the fold of the world. They're in the sheep pen of the false religion and idolatry. They're scattered all around the world in various people groups, various countries, various nationalities, various language groups. You know, with respect to shepherding and sheep, you're either in God's flock or you're in the flock of the world system under the control of Satan. And Jesus says, I love the sheep and I'm calling them out of the fold of this world system and making them part of my flock, my family. This is the process of evangelism. Interestingly enough, the Greek word for church, the body of Christ, is ecclesia. Ecclesia. Ecclesia means the called out ones. The called out ones. You and I have been called out of what? Our previous life before Christ, under the control of the world system, controlled by Satan. We've been called into the body of Christ, into the flock of Jesus Christ. So, ecclesia means the gathering of the called out ones. 1 Peter says we've been called out of darkness, what? Into his marvelous light. Furthermore, God uses sheep that are already in his flock to call out sheep that are not yet in his flock. That's called Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. That's our job description, right? So the Lord, in his infinite grace, uses us as under-shepherds to carry his call to the world who don't yet know him, and call them to become part of the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus uses a very interesting and profoundly uh, important word picture when he says, I am the door to the sheep. The door of the sheepfold is the only lawful way to get in, right? If you climb up over the top, it's not lawful. Only a legitimate shepherd enters by the door. Jesus says... I'm the only one that have the credentials and the legitimacy to be the Messiah, the one sent by God. I have fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, and I have performed supernatural miracles to demonstrate that. It was prophesied that Messiah would be born of the tribe of Judah, of the descendants of David, in Bethlehem, to a virgin. He would give sight to the blind. He would make the lame walk, the, hear, the deaf hear, and he would be greater than Moses. As a matter of fact... Jesus fulfilled more than 300 Old Testament prophecies. He is the only person who can say, I am the door, I am the legitimate Messiah because I have fulfilled prophecy and I have, by the power of my Father, performed hundreds and hundreds of miracles. So he says, I am the rightful shepherd. I have the authority to call a sheep that belong to me out of the world into an eternal life relationship with me. Now, the doorkeeper in this particular figure of speech is not mentioned. Uh, there have been a number of commentators who have different opinions. I tend to believe that it might refer to John the Baptist. John the Baptist actually opened the door for Jesus to enter into Judaism. He was called the way preparer. He prepared the way for the Lord Jesus Christ by calling Israel to repentance. It gets very heated in the room when Jesus said, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. These are false shepherds, people that sneak into the sheepfold to steal, kill, and destroy. And by the way, this doesn't mean that Israel has not had true shepherds. They have. But most of Israel's leadership has been false shepherds. And God has some rather strong opinions about false shepherds. He is very direct in Ezekiel 34 too. Son of man, he's talking to Ezekiel, God is. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, the spiritual leaders. Prophesy and say to these shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The disease you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and severity you have dominated them. Verse 10, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So God is going to judge false shepherds and protect his own sheep from them. Just in case you haven't noticed, the world is populated with a lot of false shepherds and many of them are very high profile. The wicked and false shepherds that Ezekiel has been talking about are Israel's spiritual leaders. Prophets, priests, kings. Instead of protecting the people, they neglected them. Instead of feeding them, they fleeced them. They dominated them. They abused them. They destroyed them. And God is furious about that. Now, in Jesus' day, the false shepherds are real simple. It's the scribes and Pharisees. They, for centuries, have have taken advantage of the people of Israel. They schemed their way into spiritual leadership. They would buy offices. They would corrupt Judaism. They were in bed with Rome, many of them. They wrote up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of man-made religious rules. And those religious rules actually drove people away from God. The common person of Israel looked at that and said, we can't keep all these rules. If that's what God is like, why bother trying? You can't do it. It's humanly impossible. Peter said we can't carry that out. Ever since Adam and Eve, Satan has populated the world with false shepherds. And Satan and his false shepherds, by the way, specialize in deception. I have never yet seen a false teacher wear a sign that says, false teacher, don't listen to what I say. So, how do sheep identify false shepherds? Here's the principle. Intimate experience with the good shepherd enables us to detect and reject false shepherds. Intimate experience with the good shepherd enables us to detect and reject false shepherds. The best protection against truth, arguably the only protection against lies, is intimate experience with the truth. Right? You've heard this story before that in the Bureau of Engraving, when you're trying to teach a revenue officer to detect false currency, Counterfeit currency, they spend no time on counterfeit currency. They give them extensive exposure, looking, smelling, touching, real currency. So anything that doesn't match the real currency, they know is phony. Same with us. The more time you spend with a good shepherd, in God's Word, by the way, discernment to detect false shepherds comes from two sources, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and you have both. At the moment of salvation, you receive the Holy Spirit, Who opens your mind when you read the word of God. Truth is in the word of God. Jesus said, thy word is truth. When you read God's word, you ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. He reveals truth. Anything that doesn't line up with that, you know it's false. Very simple. Jesus says something very interesting. It's a promise. It says, the sheep did not hear them. The sheep did not hear false shepherds. This is remarkable. People who know the good shepherd will not follow false shepherds. Someone who follows false shepherds and declares loyalty to them does not belong to the good shepherd. I don't care what they say. If they follow false shepherds, they don't know the good shepherd. People who belong to Christ follow Christ. Now, we don't follow perfectly. I stumble and bumble with the best of you. But, we do follow faithfully because when we sin, we're convicted of it, we repent by the grace of God, and we come back. How do we know that people who belong to Jesus will follow Him and not follow false shepherds? Well, Jesus told us in John 6.37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, John 6.44. No one can come to me, this means come to me for salvation, unless the Father, Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now we know from Ephesians that before God created anything, anything, God the Father chose each person who was to be saved. Before he created the heavens, the earth, anything, he knew you by name. You were chosen for salvation before the foundation of the world. And then you were given to Christ before you were created, before anything was created. And Jesus Christ was going to save you before your existence, right? Jesus calls that chosen sheep out of the world's fold. And he says, they will come and they will be saved by Christ. And Jesus, when he says, I will raise them up in the last day, he says, once you are saved and you belong to me, I will keep you saved. I will keep you secure. I will keep you faithful. Not perfect. You will stumble, but you will stay secure and you will not follow false shepherds. You will follow me. And we have great comfort in that because I put absolutely no confidence in my ability to follow faithfully. I have absolute confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit to keep me where I need to be at any point in time. Verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Now, the word I am, of course, is the name of God. Jesus is not a door. He is the one and only door. There is only one door to a sheepfold. There is only one door to a heaven. As we talked about, some sheepfolds don't have a door. They only have an opening. And then the shepherd becomes the door. The shepherd lies down in front of the doorway and becomes the door for the sheep to protect them. Anybody goes in and out of the sheepfold, they've got to get through the shepherd first. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's only, also the only way out of this sinful world. We know that. Another word for door is way. Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but through me, an implication of a door again, right? Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus says, If you pass through me, you will get into the sheepfold, you will be saved and get into heaven. Now, the word saved um, is the word rescued. And it's not rescued from a stubbed toe or a you know, skin knee, it's rescued from death. Certain death. Before we were saved, we were separated from God. Yes? God is the source of all life. So we were spiritually dead. We were born spiritually dead. Only Jesus could pay the penalty for our sins to God and give us his eternal life. And he says, if you come through me the door, you will not only be saved, but you'll go in and out and find pasture. And that talks about the freedom of the sheep. The freedom of the sheep to enjoy everything God created for you. At least three things. Number one, salvation and security. Your salvation doesn't depend on your faithfulness. If your salvation depended on your faithfulness, we'd all be in hell. Because we're flakes. That's just who we are. Right? It depends on the power of God. It depends on the promises of God. And based on the promises of God, we can be secure. And because we are secure, we are free. When your children and grandchildren are secure in your love... They're free, right? They can enjoy things. They can run around your house. They can do whatever because they know you, the owner of the house. One of the most comforting verses in all of the Bible is Romans 8, 38 and 39. Paul is talking about security. He says, for I am convinced that neither death, there's nine things here, death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does that not give you comfort? It says, even you are not big enough to separate yourself from the love of God. Any other created thing, that's everything, outside of God himself. So we have this phenomenal security in the Lord Jesus Christ, and nothing can separate us from his love, so we have, the, we have freedom. And we do not, should not be living in fear. The third thing is we have salvation, we have security, but we also have sustenance. What do you go to a pasture for if you're a sheep? You go to eat, right? There's food out there. Lots of fiber. Yes. So the good shepherd, in our case, feeds us on soul food. What is our soul food? The word of God. The word of God is our soul food. Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Job says, this would be interesting if you want to lose weight. He says, I have treasured the words of God's mouth more than my necessary food. If you ate physical food only as often as you ate soul food, how much weight would you put on? I mean, think about it, right? Belly up to the buffet of God's word. I like that. Belly up to the buffet. You can go back for seconds. You can go back for thirds. You can have five desserts at the belly at God's word buffet. Eat. He says, come, indulge yourself. So why did the good shepherd come and gather his flock? Well, he says, I have come that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. Abundant means exceedingly. Very highly. Beyond measure. Better than you can imagine. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all. You kind of get a picture. This is really, really, really big. That we can ask or think. Right? I know some of you are going, Well, I don't think real big anymore. Dementia is settling in. We're talking about... Regardless of your capacity, he has planned for you far more abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think, according to the power that works within us. Who's the power that works within us? God, the Holy Spirit, is the power that works within us infinitely. So he's talking about spiritual abundance. He's not talking about stuff. Stuff doesn't guarantee a better life. Eternal life, abundant life, is an intimate, personal, growing relationship with God himself is having God the Holy Spirit live in you, guiding you, directing you, teaching you, encouraging you. It's the overflowing abundant life called the fruit of the Spirit. If you want an abundant life, the fruit of the Spirit is in you and, and bears fruit in your life, you will have more love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You need some of that fruit? We, as we walk by the Spirit, we have that abundant life. We have more of Him and less of us. So the shepherd is gathering a flock. He gathers the flock to give them abundant eternal life. And how does he give them that eternal life? Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Here's the principle. Jesus, the good shepherd, gave us eternal life when he chose to pay the penalty for our sins by dying in our place. Jesus, the good shepherd, gave us eternal life when he chose to pay the penalty for our sins by dying in our place. And he uses this word good. The the Greek for that is kalos. K-A-L-O-S. Kalos, And it means not just moral goodness. It is a universal goodness. It means beautiful, attractive, noble, magnificent, completely excellent, right? In every area of life. Jesus says, I am the excellent shepherd. I am the premier shepherd. I am the true shepherd as opposed to all these flaky, dangerous, uh, abusive shepherds. How would you know a good shepherd from a bad one? If you're a sheep, you might want to know the difference. Well, a good shepherd lays down their life for their sheep. There's sacrificial leadership, sacrificial love on the part of the shepherd because the shepherd is responsible and accountable to keep the sheep from all dangers and threats. And of course, that requires a lot of vigilance. And a shepherd will do that voluntarily Because they love the sheep, right? Jesus came to earth voluntarily for the exact specific reason of laying down his life in order to pay the penalty for human sin so that we could have eternal life with God the Father. And the word for life here is psyche. It means soul. An example that Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life his psyche, his soul, his whole self, everything he was as a ransom for many. Jesus gave everything for his sheep. That's how we know he's the good shepherd, because he laid down his life for the sheep. Now, thieves and robbers are wicked. Hired hands or hirelings are typically just mercenary, and they work for money, they're selfish. The shepherds love the sheep, the hired hands love the paycheck. You know, And we know that because if you don't love the sheep when danger comes, what's the hired hand do? They're out of here. I'm not going to take on a wolf or a lion because these aren't my sheep. Now, a wolf spiritually, a wolf is anything that attacks sheep. I don't care if they look like a sheep. I don't care if they act like a sheep. I don't care if they (laughs) bow like a sheep. I don't care if they dress like a sheep. If they eat sheep, they ain't sheep. They're wolves. Paul said in Ephesians, pay attention. There is going to be people from the congregation who look like sheep, but they're wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. Don't be faked out by a wolf. If they eat sheep, they're not sheep, right? They're thieves and robbers, and you have to know the difference. Good shepherd lays down the life for the sheep. The second mark of a good shepherd is they love the sheep. They know and love the sheep. Knowledge in the Bible, in this particular context specifically, does not refer to information. When you say, I know my spouse, that doesn't mean you're at a dating sheet on your spouse. It means you know them from personal interaction. You know them intimately, you know them relationally, you know them experientially, right? Your children, your grandchildren, your friends. When you say, I know somebody, it's not, well, I know their name. It means you have a relationship with them. The shepherd has a relationship with the sheep. Because the motivation behind everything a shepherd does is love for the sheep. Not only does the shepherd know the sheep, the sheep know the shepherd. If you look at verse 14 and 15, Jesus makes this amazing statement. He says, I am the good shepherd. And I know my own, I know my own sheep, and my own sheep know me. How well does he know the sheep, and how well should you know the shepherd? Verse 15. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Jesus says, my relationship with my sheep is as intimate as my relationship with my Father. Wow. That's amazing. It's actually kind of mind blowing. It's a call for us to deepen our intimacy with our shepherd. We should know him and press on to know him better and better every day. Verse 17 For this reason, the Father loves me because I laid on my life for the sheep so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Here's the principle Jesus demonstrated his love by laying down his life. He demonstrated his deity by rising from the dead. Jesus demonstrated his love by laying down his life and he demonstrated his deity by rising from the dead. You know, any mortal can lay down their life, jump off a bridge, jump in front of a truck. You know, you'll lay down your life. Pretty predictable. But only God can take his life back. For humans, dead is a one-way street, right? Only God can become undead. Get it, right? Obedience to the Father and love for the sheep motivated Jesus to come and lay down his life in order to secure eternal life for the sheep. But there's a problem here. What happens to sheep when the shepherd dies? Sheep don't do well with a dead shepherd. As a matter of fact, they get scattered and destroyed. They require a shepherd. A dead shepherd cannot care for the sheep. That's why Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, he took his life back, and he rose from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is ultimate proof that he came down from heaven and that he's Lord even over death. And we have a full-time personal shepherd living inside us each day called the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you wonder at any point in your life, I wonder if I should go left, I wonder if I should go right. Should I say yes to this decision Should so I know this decision? What do I say to this person? When do I not say anything to this person? A lot of times that's family members. You know, you want to say stuff, but... Sometimes the Holy Spirit says, Shh, don't say anything yet, you know. Or sometimes the Spirit says, now's the time. Open your mouth and talk, right? You have a good shepherd inside you 24 7 guiding you and directing you. We have, he's caring for our souls 24 7 until we get home to heaven. 1 Peter talks about Christ being the shepherd of our souls. Our souls need a shepherd, don't they? Because we will make foolish choices without the shepherd's leadership. A couple of questions. One, do you know the good shepherd personally? And second, if you do know him, how close are you following him? I mean, you say, well, I got a shepherd. He's kind of over the hill somewhere in the next valley. And that's where I kind of want him. I don't want him too close, because when he's close, he tells me what to do, and I really don't want him to tell me what to do. That's a sheep probably looking to get eaten by a wolf. We are always invited and commanded and called, stay close to the shepherd. Psalm 73 says, the nearness of God is my good. Everything we want in life, everything we can possibly want in life is where? With our good shepherd. So stay close to the shepherd. Okay, let's summarize and then Marty will come and do prayer and praise for us. Number one, Jesus is the true shepherd whose sheep respond to his call by following him faithfully. Those who refuse to follow the shepherd don't belong to his flock. Number two, Jesus, the only door to a saving relationship with God, gives his flock abundant life. That's why he came to give us abundant life. Not just in heaven, abundant life here and now on planet Earth. Life with Christ on Earth is infinitely better than life on Earth without Christ. Number three, intimate experience with the good shepherd enables us to detect and reject false shepherds. When people routinely make bad choices, routinely, what can you conclude? they're probably not listening to the shepherd. They're listening to other false shepherds or false teachings or their own lusts or whatever because the shepherd wants to protect us from making bad choices. Number four, Jesus the good shepherd gave us eternal life when he chose to pay the penalty for our sins by dying in our place. So he came to give us life and how he gave us life was by laying down his own life and paying the penalty for our sins so we could have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, that love is demonstrated by laying down his life. He demonstrated his deity by rising from the dead. So if Jesus had stayed dead, we would have no hope because death would be the conqueror. But because he conquered sin and death, we have hope. There's an old song by Bill and Gloria Gaither, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. I know, I know who holds the future. And life's worth living because he lives. I love you all. Now that you know. Do.